It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. And by the hilarious world of depression, I mean the podcast and the book of the same name by me, John Moe. Hi. Today, we're bringing you a couple of selections from the official unabridged audio version of the book, a book that you will have an opportunity to own at the same time you're helping the show. It's all synergy, you guys. There's so much synergy. If you listen to this podcast, you might have gathered some information about me, approximate age, where I live, where I'm from, but I pretty much turn the spotlight on the other person because one, that's what interviews are, and two, because I'm just curious about people and about depression. I'm curious how depression appears, how it presents itself, what it does, what works to address it, what doesn't work. And four years into this podcast, I'm more curious than ever. After we had been making this show for a season or two, I was approached to write a memoir, and I didn't like the idea. I didn't think my life was as interesting as those of the people I was talking to. I didn't think my story would matter to anyone, which was humility talking, but also depression, I think. I couldn't grasp the idea that I mattered to people. It was like being told I could fly, and I was like, well, no, of course I can't fly. Finally, I was told by people who knew my story and who knew more about books than I did that telling about my life and my challenges with depression and how this program came to exist, that could help people, which totally pressed my button. Helping people is all I want to do with my professional life. So I said, okay. And I took a year to write it and another year to revise it, and here it is. But before we start, I want to thank you sincerely for listening. You turned to the hilarious world of depression to feel less alone. And our role, I think, and from what you've been telling us, is more important now than ever before. Every May, we observe Mental Health Awareness Month. But this year, many of us are feeling especially isolated and attuned to our mental health. And a lot of us are struggling. Through these interviews, we find humor in some of life's darkest moments. We can find ways to make carrying the burden of depression a little more bearable. And we find insight, themes, treatments, common threads. Together, we navigate depression, anxiety, and now this virus. And together is how we make the show. We are a public media program. We rely on hundreds of people giving what they can. Our average donation is about $50 for a one-time donation or $7 for a monthly. Now, you are listening to this right now. You are hearing my voice. So, yes, you are a part of our community. And here's the deal. Here's the community news. It's a tough time for us financially. And we need you to give generously, whatever that means for you, to keep this show going please head to hilariousworld.org slash donate. We've got thank you gifts, including signed and personalized copies of my book, the very book you're going to listen to in this episode. Lots of other premium gifts as well. Go check it out, hilariousworld.org slash donate. Okay, here we go. Let's listen to chapter one of The Hilarious World of Depression, the book. Chapter one in which I finally get better. It was summer outside, 
bright and humid, and I was inside, sitting in a big, poofy chair, ready to get into it with a new therapist. I'll probably make jokes, I said, to begin our first appointment. It's part of the way I talk. I like to make jokes about grim and grisly stuff as a way of facing it. The jokes, the laughs, that's oxygen for me. Maybe it's deflection. I'm not sure. I don't think so. You tell me. Okay, Julie said. This was the intake session, where you tell the therapist your story and include descriptions of family of origin, traumas, any occurrence of mental illness on your family tree, current life, health habits, and the reason you made the appointment that put you in the poofy chair. I've been depressed my whole life, but I only found out about 12 years ago. I've been kind of faking my way through since childhood. I've managed to stop getting worse. I want to be better. Well, let's see if we can do something about that, said Julie. I liked her. Finding a therapist is a bit like dating. You might have to have some very boring or weird or tense meetings before you find someone you connect with. I was fortunate that this felt good right away. For various reasons, I had mostly had short-term relationships with therapists in the past, just flings, even a few one-session stands. I had never been able to make much of a commitment. My mind was a wild stallion that demanded to run free. I continued, I have to say, though, I have a lot of reasons to think this won't work. And yes, I know that might be the depression talking, but it's also the only evidence I've got. It's never gotten better before, really, so how could it? But yes, I'm ready to try. I hope it works. I doubt it will. Julie was a bit younger than me, but old enough to have lived a life. She had probably experienced hardship, probably had someone close to her die, so I felt like she would know what I was talking about. She was cheerful, but reserved, reminding me of someone I might have known in college who was in a sorority, but also kind of knew how silly sororities were. What's really, I guess, dumb about this is that I've got this show I host. It's a podcast about depression, so I spend all day at work thinking about this stuff and a lot of time outside work talking about this stuff. I travel places to give speeches about this stuff. Right now, I'm working on a book about this stuff, too, but it all came out of this podcast. I know the podcast well, she said. You emailed me about it, but I already knew it. I had emailed her, but figured she wouldn't read the email or remember it if she had because I'm dumb and worthless and everyone hates me. This didn't make me sad. It's the way I understood the world to be. I kept talking, like I do. But the thing about that show is that it's mostly about other people's depression. I feel like I understand other people's depression pretty well, actually. I can quickly figure out what their issues are and draw information and stories out of them, make connections they hadn't thought of. The thing is, I don't know what is going on with me. It's hard to see a skyscraper from inside the skyscraper. My first appointment with Julie took place after two full seasons of The Hilarious World of Depression. By the time I talked to her, I had conducted a couple of years' worth of deep and lengthy interviews with comedians, musicians, and writers who had dealt with clinical depression, or Clinid, as we had taken to calling it on the show. I had also spent a lot of time with my public radio colleagues discussing those interviews and how best to present them in order to inform, enlighten, and entertain our audience. This moment here with Julie 
was really the first time I had attempted to do anything to improve my own mental health, which had ranged from getting by to disastrous for most of my life. I had spent years exhorting people to get help and to believe that they could get better while never believing that about myself. Instead of attempting to actually improve the health of my mind, I had always looked for ways to just hold on for a while longer. Essentially, it was as if I were living in a house that kept catching on fire, but all I had ever tried to do was douse the flames. From there, I guess the plan was to sit in this charred, smoke-damaged house and say, well, now everything is okay, without having any intention of fixing the walls, patching the roof, or figuring out where the goddamn flames kept coming from in the first place. Friends, that's just bad property management. I had ended up believing that it was just too late for me. I was never going to do any better with my mental health, so the best-case scenario was to do no worse. I wasn't thrilled about that, but I accepted it. The notion of improving seemed a lot like getting your arm bitten off by a shark and then waiting for a new arm to grow back. What you really need to do then is stop the bleeding and launch a podcast about shark bite wounds. Okay, for real though, there are going to be a lot of metaphors and similes in this book. I can't even define depression. I've never found anyone who could. That's part of the problem. So reader, it'll be analogy a go-go from here on. Strap in. I was in Julie's office because there was finally a critical mass of significant events in my life that made seeking help seem viable and sort of urgent in a prevention of dying kind of way. One was that I was turning 50, which is only still middle age if you plan to be 100. Frankly, the sands of my mortal life were falling into the bottom part of the hourglass. I was on deadline before my deadline. Also, lately, I kept wanting to not so much die as simply not be alive anymore. I didn't want to kill myself. God, no, far from it. I just kept thinking about how nothingness, a nothingness in which I am not even aware of nothingness, would be sort of delicious. This even though the world has wonderful stuff to offer, like my family and ice cream and the NBA playoffs. I'd be driving into work or cleaning the kitchen or trying to sleep, and boom, there came the thoughts of longing for the void. A void that I fully understood I would not perceive because that's the thing about voids. This feeling was morbid and, yes, depressing, but it was also just pesky. What it really was, of course, was a mind that wanted to rest but kept worrying along and pushing me to dark places. My unique brand of depression responds to stress. Specifically, it blows up under stress. When the going gets tough, I don't get amped up, I get despondent. I turn into a human version of a song by the Smiths. By the time I reached for the phone to call Julie for an appointment, I was basically Morrissey crooning alone in a darkened basement. Stressors included my soon-to-be high school senior son, Charlie, getting ready to apply to colleges, booking the next season of our show, and trying to do a good job writing the book you're listening to right now. And yes, there's always stress in life. We all go through stuff. But the rate at which I metabolized stress into depression had gone through the roof. It was a brutally efficient machine. 
What do you have to be stressed about? The normies might have said, if I ever talked about these things with normal people. You have a family, a house, a car, a good job. Just deal with it. As if I could simply do that. As if I chose this. As if I looked at the options available to me and they were clearly labeled perseverance and freaking the fuck out all the time. And calmly said, hmm, yes, I select option B. Normies and saddies are different, you see. Let's say there's a long bridge going over a high canyon, and there are two cars on it, one for the normies and one for the saddies. The normies are in a big land yacht of a Buick, weighs a ton, low to the ground. When a stiff wind blows, the normies feel a mild push but continue driving, perhaps casually noting that it's getting windy out there. Then they go back to listening to, I don't know, Foo Fighters. The saddies are piled into a Model T with a sail on top of it for some reason. They see the wind coming and it's all they can do to keep from being blown off the road and plunging into the canyon. The normies see the saddie struggle and wonder what the problem is because to them, the wind doesn't seem that bad. Try being more positive, the normies shout, as the saddie's Model T goes tumbling off the side and the saddies deploy the parachutes they've gotten used to wearing. I'd had good therapists in the past, briefly, but all I ever took away from therapy was a somewhat clearer understanding of how messed up I was. That's helpful, sure, but it's not really progress, like knowing the brand of refrigerator you're locked in. And this was not the fault of the therapists I had seen who were all trained pros and good at their jobs. It was my fault, or Clint e. D.'s fault. I never wanted to go all that deep in therapy because that's where the monsters were. I'm talking about the really, really bad memories. The deep bruises, the scars, the events that significantly shape a person through injury. Trauma. Rather than tackle the past, I was willing to settle for a tense ceasefire with it. Letting my life be like Middle East countries that hate each other. There would be car bombings, but a homeland is a homeland. I'd gone through life with the belief, often heard in simple-minded quarters of popular psychology, that the past is the past and you just have to move on. Let it go, the simple-minded say, again as if no one had ever tried that before. Don Henley and Glenn Fry wrote a song along these lines called Get Over It. My response song would be called Fuck Off, Don Henley and Glenn Fry, You Don't Know What You're Talking About. I suspect most people who choose the willfully simplistic Henley method are people who've never had much unpleasant stuff in their past to begin with. Because this notion is some bullshit. If you can't understand your past, then you don't really know how your mind got to where it is now because you simply don't know yourself. Making matters worse, depression causes the saddie to lose hope. It inserts despair where hope should go, and you're left at least suspecting, if not believing in your heart, that nothing will or even could get better. So to figure things out, I mean, depression doesn't even want you to get up, take a shower, and brush your teeth. So something like figuring out how your own mind works feels about as easy as taking a bus to Mars. Over and over in interviews I conducted for the show, I heard about CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It's a practical method of psychological counseling that's built around retraining one's thought patterns so that everyday stimuli aren't converted into toxic thoughts. 
You tear down the old roads that always go to the bad parts of town, and you build strong new highways to prosperous neighborhoods. On the show, it was the guests who had gone through CBT who seemed to be doing the best. So when I went to find a new therapist, I limited my search. They had to offer this specific approach. They had to be relatively close to my house, so I couldn't talk my way out of going. And they couldn't be like 23 and or named Christy, with a K and an I at the end. In that first session, I only got about halfway through my biography. I think most therapists and patients can get this all done in one session, but we had to schedule a second to fully describe all the ick. I recall Julie's mouth actually dropping open during one description of family behaving in a not-at-all-nurturing manner. When you've shocked a professional therapist, you've accomplished something. At the end of the second half of intake, Julie paused, collected some thoughts, and said, You've been through more than most other people. I gave myself a little mental high-five for being the trauma champ, quickly imagining a lavish yet morose award ceremony. The longest road a person with depression travels can often be the one between where they are at present and where they can get help to improve. Seeking that out, making that appointment, and keeping that appointment can be a Herculean task. And yes, that sounds, well crazy. If you can get better, why wouldn't you want to do that as soon as possible? It's like being super hungry but reluctant to go to the free pizza store located 10 feet away. I don't know how the free pizza store stays in business, honestly. Also, now I imagine a depressed Hercules trying to figure out what therapist is in his insurance network and wishing he had some pizza. What keeps people away is a fear one that depression itself is delighted to stoke, that as long as you don't find out you have mental health problems, then you somehow don't have mental health problems. If you never get a good look at the monster, then there's no need to fight the monster. The problem there is that, yeah, that monster is real, and if you opt out of fighting it, the monster simply beats the crap out of you all the time. While I had the monster pretty well contained, I wanted to start throwing some punches. I wanted to feel better. So we got to work unpacking it all. We have another section coming up that we think you might really enjoy in just a moment on this special edition of The Hilarious World of Depression, the podcast, the book about the podcast. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, we are in a tight spot financially. In times of uncertainty, there is strength in our diversity as a community. And on this show, you've heard from comedians, child actors, writers, a drag queen, and so many more different sorts of people. And we know our audience comes from all kinds of people all around the world. Some of you aren't in a position to donate right now. I understand that. But a lot of you are, and we're counting on you. Please step up and give as generously as you can. We are in a pinch. We need it. To thank you, you can get this book, the one you're hearing excerpts of, and a signed or even personalized book plate from me. If you can afford to give $500 or more, 
I'll even video chat with you or your book club. You tell me. Every donation matters, so we have thank you gifts at every level, including pins, mugs, socks, and t-shirts. See them all and give right now at hilariousworld.org donate. And go ahead and pause the show if you want to. Donate. Come back for the next chapter because it's about dogs, you guys. Dogs. But first, go right now to hilariousworld.org donate. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves, it's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation. But makeitok.org is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Okay, now, back to the audiobook. I feel strongly about dogs. I love dogs. As a distraction, yes, but also as role models. This is part of Chapter 13 from The Hilarious World of Depression. The book. The audiobook. Chapter 13. Things That Make Me Stronger Nothing works for everyone, but for most people with depression, there's something out there that will make a positive difference. It might mean a long and laborious trial and error period, and it might also involve a serendipitous discovery in unlikely places. Here are some things outside meds and therapy that work for me. Dogs. Get a dog. Get two dogs. Much like having children, it can sometimes feel like you made a horrible mistake bringing dogs into your life. What with the noise and the poo and the expense and the sleep you'll lose and never, ever get back. But unlike a child, a dog will almost never crash your car, spill truth about you in a memoir, or go to an expensive liberal arts college. And if those things do happen, you've got a very clever dog indeed and can exploit it for money. It's conclusive. Dogs are better than children. I would apologize here to my own children, but I'm confident they can construct the same argument in the matter of dogs versus parents. Besides, they never read my books, so who cares? In our Seattle days, Jill and I owned a beagle named Lucky. But after Kate came along, Lucky simply couldn't handle life. Terrified that a new baby would mean no more food for her, she began making every effort, safe or reckless, to acquire it, leaping to countertops, falling off countertops, wedging herself behind the fridge, and anything else she could think of. At one point, she was so determined to get inside a plastic lid-covered container she thought contained food, it did not, that she ended up dislodging her lower jaw, requiring an emergency trip to the vet with a slack-jawed, crazed beagle who somehow regretted nothing. We chose to side with our human children and found Lucky a new home with a woman who lived alone and loved beagles. 
So we had seen how the dog thing could go bad, and needed only the mental image of a beagle with a slack, swinging jaw to remind us. In 2009, we had lived in St. Paul for a year, and Charlie, now eight, and Kate, now five, had begun an earnest lobbying process. They acquired library books about dogs, and they would find sections about their preferred breeds and leave the books open to those pages around the house. When we mentioned it was a nice day and they should go outside, they would note how fun it would be to play fetch with a dog if we had one, which they could not help but notice we did not. The crushing blow came when, at their request, we watched the movie Hotel for Dogs, a family movie about a hotel for dogs. Don Cheadle, who also starred in the not-similar Hotel Rwanda, plays the social worker who ends up running a dog hotel while somehow never being overpowered by what must be a debilitating stench of urine. The kids' tears and lamentations at the end of that movie caused Jill and me to cave. I caution Charlie and Kate that dogs are not toys. They need a lot of care, feeding, walks, cleaning up, and it's emotional, too. And one day they die. That's not true said Charlie, scowling in my ignorance. That's not how dogs work. Yeah, of course it is, I replied. Dogs don't die the same day you get them, he said. Usually, at least. I said, one day they die. Oh, said Charlie. I thought you said, in one day, they die. Yeah, we know they die, Dad. Everything dies. Baby, that's a fact, I said winging a Bruce Springsteen reference over his head. Dave was a small, nervous, mixed breed, who, though only a couple of years old, had been through a few owners already. All the wires were connected wrong inside Dave's brain, and as a result, he did a lot of things backward. When I would come home from work, Dave, instead of rushing to greet me and deliver affection, would bark ferociously, as if I were a persistent robber who broke in every day at 5.30. Dave did not enjoy the company of other dogs, had no use for toys, and would turn his nose up at treats. On occasion, he would get a used corn cob, fall in love with it, and growl at anyone who came near. Playfully tossed tennis balls, bounced off his head, and he did not blink. But in calm moments, Dave would cuddle, and every night he would sleep on Charlie's bed. Through the social pitfalls and challenges of Charlie's childhood, Dave was a reliable friend, asking nothing in return, just wanting to be there. Dave found the person in the family who needed him the most, as dogs usually do, and did his job. He also pooped on the floor quite a lot, which was not his job. Mixed performance reviews. Many years later, when my radio stage show Wits was canceled and I was hitting a nasty wall of depression, we decided to get another dog. Maybe this time a dog that did, you know, dog things, played, ran. We loved Dave, but as he got older, he was more like a screwed-up cat than a dog. Plus, getting a dog is a better response to a midlife crisis than buying a sports car or having an affair, and somewhat cheaper. Into our life came Sally, a five-month-old black lab pointer mix from the Humane Society. 
She loved Dave right away and tried to engage him in play almost constantly. Dave never saw the point of it or intellectually grasped exactly how play works. Nevertheless, Sally persisted, forming a dynamic not unlike SpongeBob SquarePants and his neighbor Squidward. We often took the dogs to Crosby Farm Park, down by the Mississippi River, where they could go off-leash and run through the brush and where Sally could swim while Dave stared at her, not knowing how or why someone would do that. Sally's favorite game to play at the park was to jump right over Dave. This was Dave's least favorite game, and he would bark and growl. That made Sally love it more because she had at least gotten him to engage in some way. In June of 2017, on a walk through the park, Sally heard something in the brush and dove in to investigate. Obscured by the thick shrubs and trees, we heard the sound of an altercation and, oddly, the gobble of a turkey. At that sound, Dave rushed in to save Sally. A moment passed, and Sally came bounding out, happy as could be. Dave did not. We called him once, which was all it ever took, and he did not return. We went into the brush after him and called him some more. Nothing. Went to the exact spot where he had gone. Nothing there. Spent the next hour searching, but no luck. It's not unusual for dogs to disappear, but they're usually found unharmed. Over the next several months, we tried family searches, cooking stinky meat near the spot he went missing, 40 friends plus strangers from Twitter in a concentrated search, employing a volunteer dog search organization who provided us a dedicated caseworker who was tireless in her efforts, food and water stations in front of trail cameras we set up, and two separate pet psychics. Months went by. Dogs would be spotted here and there, some of them in shelters. We would investigate, but it was never Dave. I had lost dogs to cars when I was a kid. I had lost them to disease. And it's a horrible, horrible experience. For my family, this was worse. We started to lose hope, but logically speaking, we could not regard Dave as dead since we really didn't know. At the same time, we couldn't reasonably expect him to be alive, especially when a Minnesota winter came through. He was Schrodinger's dog, neither slash both alive slash dead. A few months after Dave vanished, I took Charlie, then a high school junior, to look at colleges, putting us together in the car with nothing to do but talk. Along the way, Charlie ended his months-long stoicism and broke down in tears. He was my friend when I had no friends, he said. He always liked me no matter what. It wouldn't be until the following summer, over a year after Dave's disappearance, that we all came to accept that something must have got him out there. Many, many tears were shed and will continue to be. The stress of not knowing was terrible. The knowledge that we'll never know is almost as hard. Maybe a coyote hurt him or killed him. Maybe the rather large hawks or eagles that lived nearby played a part. I simply can't believe a turkey killed Dave, because that is too weird even for Dave. I theorize that because things were so backward for Dave, some instinct kicked the wrong way and a bad situation got worse. 
When I was in that car with Charlie, when he was finally letting the pain out, I scrambled to think of words of comfort. All Dave wanted, I told Charlie, was to get into your heart and get you into his. He wanted to put love in your heart and let you have that feeling, that knowledge, that warm, wonderful certainty of a connection. And he gave you that, right? He had, Charlie agreed. And it's still there. And it hurts like crazy right now, but it's love and it's good. A dog comes to a person or a family as an ambassador of love. And we put up with all the barking and the floor poo because of that love. Once that love is established, the rest of that dog's life is a party to celebrate the mission being accomplished. And as Prince tells us, parties aren't meant to last. Yeah, that was a stretch. But Prince is the primary prophet of Minnesota, so worth a shot. I continued. We never get enough time with anyone we love, especially dogs, because of biology. I wish we had more time with Dave, but I know that love is still there and always will be. That helps, said Charlie. Thanks, Dad. After Dave disappeared, Sally was out of sorts. Not sad, really, but nervous. Every night at around nine, she would find me and more or less demand to be held and petted. It was a ritual that came to be known as reassurance o'clock. After a few months, we decided to get another dog for Sally. Sally was our dog, and we'd get Sally a dog of her own. At the Humane Society, we met Brenda a blonde mutt of no recognizable breed, rescued from Alabama. In the little visitation room, Brenda timidly went from family member to family member, demonstrating hesitant affection and allowing herself to be petted. What a nice, mellow dog, Jill said, a bit surprised. We adopted her, but unanimously agreed that Brenda sounded more like a junior high science teacher than a dog, and we renamed her Maisie. Whereas Brenda had been polite and timid, Maisie, after we brought her home, was bonkers. Tons of energy, always wanting to play wrestle with Sally, who was completely down for that kind of roughhousing, and enjoying toys with a feral, growling, presumably Alabaman intensity. No dog could be less like Dave than Maisie, except in one crucial area. Maisie fell in love with Charlie, not to sleep on his bed and provide gentle comfort, but to play, play, play. While everyone in the family had grown weary of Maisie's favorite game, Puppy Wants to Bite You But Doesn't Understand When to Stop, Charlie loved it. He thought her default demeanor, a kind of genial, toothy nihilism, was hilarious. Dave's thing had been to be a kind of anti-dog, while Maisie's shtick was to be the doggiest dog of all dogs. Maisie would hop up on Charlie's bed, mouth agape, teeth bared, while he was at his desk working on homework, and she wouldn't quit giving noisy clues until he agreed to engage in the kind of mock combat that is, at heart, both a dog playing and a dog for real biting you. Maisie taught Charlie to keep loving dogs. Dogs don't worry about the past or future. 
no depression, no anxiety, right there, that gives dogs role model status. While we mustn't emulate a dog's present-only approach to life, our careers, families, and homes would fall apart, we can still see it as heroic. I don't believe it's possible or even advisable for a human to love another human as demonstrably as nearly any dog loves almost all humans. I mean, you can't go knocking people down like that and licking them all over while whimpering. It's impolite. But it is useful for a human to see such regular demonstrations of what love looks like. For depressed folks, it is also a reminder that it is indeed possible to feel things and feel them profoundly. Even Dave, when barking his head off at me, would always be wagging his tail. So I knew what he meant, even if he never knew what he meant. Dogs are also highly effective at ratcheting down humans' sense of self-importance. You and me, say dogs, are both mammals. We eat, we poop, we run around, we like to sleep in soft places, and we enjoy toys, although we define them differently. Spend any time with a dog and you realize that you have quite a bit in common on a basic survival level. I read somewhere that dogs don't really give much thought to the idea of species distinction and that the reason they think people are so great is because they see us as exceptionally clever dogs. Check out these dogs, dogs think. They walk on two legs and can reach things. They can open the fridge and take out meat and cheese, and even though they don't eat it all right away, still don't get that, doesn't add up, not sure I'm even impressed, just baffled, the point is they can do it. I want to hang out with these. Amazing, large, hairless dogs. Depressed people who can comfortably house and take care of a dog should really consider adopting one. Or maybe two. One dog is an ongoing abstract monologue, but two is a bizarre farce. Okay, the credits are right around the corner, but I just want you to think for a minute about what this program has brought you. I hope you've reflected on your own mental health. I hope you've learned a little about how to cope on the hard days. I hope you've laughed. I hope you remember you're not alone in this. The hilarious world of depression brings all of that into your life and into mine. And if you have the means, please don't let this episode end without donating. We're only offering the signed or personalized book plates this month in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. Get one for yourself or a loved one. You know, the, the signed plate is nice. It comes attached to a whole book, too. So, you know, it's kind of a two-for-one deal. Get one for yourself. Get one for someone you love, uh, along with a T-shirt, socks, mug, or a pin, or even a cameo from me on a video call. I can't wait to talk to you. But most importantly, your donation powers this show. It allows it to exist. And right now, we need it. And it keeps the show free and available to thousands of listeners who rely on it. It's your gift to them when you support this show. So give as generously as you can today at hilariousworld.org slash donate.
On our next episode, star of stage and screen Mike Birbiglia knows what he has to do when he goes to work. Part of the job of a certain type of comedian, like what the kind of stuff I do, is is to take the darkness and, and break it open and find the humor in it mm-hmm. so that people themselves can see the humor in it. Uh, because I think laughter is a great coping mechanism for uh, a lot of darkness that, that surrounds us at all times. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our production team this time around includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, Corey Shreppel, and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available. Text the word HOME to 741-741 for the crisis text line or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. Search for the name of the show or Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. God says, Doc, that's the problem. What if I was to tell you I'm Paiachi? This great big smile is just for show. Grease paint Would you say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know